Romans chapter 6. Uh, so obviously Romans chapter 6 comes after the first five chapters of the book of Romans. That's how numbers work. This is important to know because what we have been discussing in the first five chapters of the book of Romans is primarily the doctrine of justification. How sinners are made right before a holy and righteous God. And we've kind of been down the trail of the gospel, starting with the realization that there has been a revelation of the wrath of God, the wrath of God being manifest from, from heaven on all ungodliness by which men and their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We, we, we saw the reality of judgment and condemnation that is uh, to, to come and do to all those who have rebelled against God and have sinned against God, and we uh, learned that that was everybody that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and there's no one who is able to escape this judgment. And we saw Jesus put forward as that propitiation for sin. If no one can be right with God based on their works, we need a Savior. We need someone who can be righteous on our behalf and someone who can atone for our sins. We see Jesus put forward as that Savior to be received by faith and faith alone. We talked about how justification is by faith alone and apart from works of law. So we, we talked about the gospel and Christianity is not this message that, that you've got to get your life together and then God will bless you. Or you've got to attain to some sort of standard of righteousness and, and law keeping in order for God to accept you or, or welcome you into his family and into his kingdom. Rather, we said, no, those things are impossible. God moves towards us in grace, putting forward his son, Jesus. And we simply receive Christ with the empty hands of faith. And that faith that receives that promise of salvation, just like Abraham received the promise of an offspring to come, when we receive that promise, God imputes that to us as righteousness. He counts that, credits that to us as righteousness so that we can stand before God as if we were righteous because we possess by faith, we hold in our hands the righteousness of Christ himself. It's been credited to us. And so this gospel that the first five chapters of Romans has been unpacking has made it totally clear that salvation is by grace and grace alone. Justification is by faith and faith alone, apart from works of law. And then as we move into chapters 6 and following, we see Paul starting to deal with some objections that arise. If you read through the book of Romans, you see a, a sort of a pattern where Paul will raise a question. Well, you might say, or what then? And then he'll begin to unpack that question. This is a, a common thing we see in the book of Romans, and it sort of acts as chapter markers really in the, the epistle. And chapter 6 begins with one of those questions. And so we're moving into Paul responding to the common objection that if you teach people that they are justified by grace through faith, that that would lead to lawlessness. That would lead to licentiousness and sinful living. Hey, if, if, if I'm saved by grace and not by works, then I can do whatever I want to do. You know, God's going to save me. He's going to forgive me. Right? I can do this because God, he forgives. That's what he does. So you're teaching people, Paul, 
to go live in sin. After all, he said at the end of chapter 5 um, that law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So people are saying, hey, Paul, you're telling people to go and sin so that grace will abound. And Paul moves in chapter 6 and answers, actually, absolutely not. <laughs> May it never be. That is not what he's saying. And so that's what we'll see in chapter 6. The main thing I want you guys to sort of latch on to tonight in, in this chapter is that salvation in Christ is a real event with real impacts on your life. Salvation in Christ is not some sort of spiritual reality that just sort of exists in the heavens somewhere, that exists out there, that never makes it down into your life. But salvation in Christ is a real event that has real impacts on your life. See, we talk about salvation in Christ. What Paul would have us see here in chapter 6 is that you're saved from something. You're saved from sin. You're saved from death. You're saved from sin, not safe to sin. Romans 6 will tell us that you're saved from sin, not safe to sin, which moves us into this sort of next sort of category and what we call the ordo salutis, the, the order of salvation. Ordo salutis. That's a great Scrabble phrase. Uh, words with friends. What do you guys play? Wordle. 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 Yeah. Only five letters, see? It's just, I would make a Gen Z joke, but I'm not going to do that because I respect you guys. <laughs> so we're moving on into sanctification. We've been talking about justification, how you're made right before God. Sanctification is basically, how do I get better? How do, how do I become more holy? If I've been set apart, which the word sanctify means to set apart, to make holy, and God has declared that in justification, Sanctification is living out this new identity. It's becoming what you are. It's growing in your likeness, moral conformity unto Christ is how, what sanctification is. And so the next few chapters of Romans is going to be on that sort of topic. So with some context um, giving, uh, we'll, we'll jump into the text together. And I'm actually going to read, I'm not going to read the whole chapter all at once. So we're going to read it in, in four, four chunks. Um, tonight. So um, follow along. So we'll start with just the first two verses. Uh, God's word says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is God's word. So as we said earlier, he's answering this question in verse one. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Looking back to what we said at the end of chapter 5, and his answer is, by no means, which is the biblical way of saying, heck no. It, it, he's proving that you are completely missing it. If you're thinking this is what we're preaching, that we continue to sin so that grace may abound, then you've missed the whole thing. You've got to go back to the starting point. By no means. Okay, and so we're going to see his explanation of that by no means answer in two parts. So the title of the sermon is Dead to Sin, Alive to God. Dead to Sin, Alive to God. And we have two points. 
I think it was a few weeks ago, I said that my sermons always have three points, and ever since then, it's been two points. So someone's prayers are being answered. <laughs> Dead to sin, alive to God, we'll see in two points. One is living baptized. Living baptized. And second is living enslaved. So first point, living baptized. We see this in verses 3 through 11. So uh, read along with me. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the first thing we want to look at in this passage is this spiritual reality of baptism. The spiritual reality of baptism. First, we need to kind of talk about the meaning of the word baptism. It's this a word that we use really almost exclusively in religious context, but there are some places where we use it figuratively outside of sort of Christianity. But the literal meaning of the word, the word is baptizo in the Greek. It literally means to dip or immerse, to dip or immerse, to, to, to submerge, submerge beneath water typically. Uh, but we also use this term figuratively uh, to mean something along the lines of being initiated into something. You know, you're initiated into something typically in a dramatic fashion. So think about it like, like boot camp. So in boot camp, you're being baptized into the military. You're being baptized into the army. You smile. You have a relation to that, huh? Yeah, you're, you're introduced. You're initiated in a dramatic fashion, it says like, this is who you are, this is what you're about, this is your life from now on, right? Parents get baptized into parenthood in those early sleepless nights. We, we use this phrase, we're baptized by fire. Some of you feel like that at the beginning of a semester. You, you get into it and you're like, oh, this is college. This is different than high school, okay? You're baptized, you're initiated into something in a dramatic fashion. You're submerged. You're immersed in it. You see? Your identity has changed. So what is the usage in this context? All right, he uses the term baptism many times here. The usage in this context, I believe, is sort of a shorthand uh, for the whole initiation phase of the Christian life. I don't think he's referring to specifically the act of baptism, in Christian worship, where you're, you're immersed in water and brought out. 
I think he's using the term baptism as a shorthand phrase for the whole beginning stage of your Christian life, meaning repentance and faith and baptism itself. See, baptism is also often used as the, uh, the, the sign, and that's what it is really, it's the sign of that entrance into Christ, that faith in Christ. And so baptism is like a shorthand way of saying faith in Christ, conversion, regeneration, repentance, all that stuff is wrapped up in the phrase baptism here. And one thing, just sort of a side note of application here is when you read the scripture, uh, there, there is no biblical concept of an unbaptized Christian. See, the, the apostle would be assuming that everyone who is a follower of Christ would be baptized. Um, and so if you consider yourself a follower of Christ and you haven't been baptized, let's talk about that. We'll talk through the reasons for that and see, because it's one of the first things that Jesus commands his people and his followers to do is to be baptized because that picture of baptism is significant. And participation in that, that ritual, that religious ritual, does something to us. Um, it doesn't cause our regeneration um, but it, it does teach us something and it presses us and it baptizes us into Christ in a special way, which is why Christ commands us to do it. So in the apostolic mind, there is no category for the unbaptized, unbaptized Christian. So what does it mean then to be baptized into Christ? If this isn't specifically um, in a very narrow way talking about water baptism, but I think it's talking about water baptism and other things that water baptism points to. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ, as it says in verse 3? Um, this is a topic that theologians refer to as union with Christ. Union with Christ. You were baptized into Christ. You were immersed in Christ. You were swallowed up by Christ. Just like that boot camp experience initiates you into the military, it becomes your new identity. It changes the trajectory of your life. Being baptized into Christ gives you a new identity, a new trajectory of your life, a, a new um, representative head that we talked about last week. And it says more now, we were baptized in the Christ, but it specifically says, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Okay, and this is going to be a very practical thing for us. This is more than just theology. And what I hope you're, you're getting as we week after week come to the scripture is that it's never just theology, but theology undergirds everything in life. Because you were baptized into his death. What does that mean? That means that when Christ died, if you're a believer in Christ, if you follow Jesus, you died. When he was laid in the tomb, you were buried with him, is what it says in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So your identity prior to Christ, your identity as yourself was immersed into Christ's death. You were swallowed up. When, when he died, you died. And you were buried with him. 
Now, there are a couple of different responses that you could have to that. One could be, but I don't want to die. I don't want to die. Why do I need to die? Well, why do you need to die? We've talked about this. You sinner. The wages of sin is death. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. See, the reality of death is it's inevitable. We all die. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus died so that you can die and rise again, which is where he moves us to in the next bit here. But if you don't want to die, we'll see in a little bit, what are you really living for anyways? If you're not willing to die in Christ, you're, you're living for death anyways. So why don't you die to the death that you're living? And you do that by faith in Christ, being baptized into him and to his death. Now, another response to the reality that you died with Christ and the reality you should experience is, thank God. My shame, my guilt, my shortcomings, my sin is gone. It's atoned for. It, that person whom I'm ashamed of is dead. And so there's two ways you can look at it. You can receive it as good news and say, hey, these burdens, these uncertainties, these things that I, that I hate about myself, even, and especially these things that, that God hates in me, are dead. They were laid upon Christ. He died for them on the, they were laid upon Christ and he died for them on the cross and he was buried in a tomb and you laid there with him. That's what baptism tells us. But it's more than that, right? As I said, Jesus died. A lot of times people say Jesus died so that you could live. Well, there's truth to that, but it's more powerful, I believe, to say Jesus died so that you could die and survive it and not die eternally, but so that you could die and be resurrected. See, the gospel has a purpose and you are baptized into Christ's death for a purpose. And that purpose is resurrection. The goal of the gospel isn't just the cross and atonement for sin. That's just a means to an end. The end, the goal, is salvation. It's salvation. It's resurrected life. It's eternal life. You know, a lot of us in sort of our, our Reformed uh, Protestant background, we, we really emphasize the cross, especially in a sort of evangelical culture that sort of wants to downplay the cross and be ashamed of the cross and, and talk about the doctrine of atonement as cosmic child abuse and things like that. We want to say, no, we want to boast in the cross. We want to glory in the cross, and we do. Amen. But we must remember that the cross was a means to an end. That Jesus didn't stay on the cross. He died for us, he was buried for us, and he rose for us, and he lives for us. And so the goal of the gospel isn't just the cross 
and atonement for sin. It doesn't end in the tomb, but it actually ends in resurrection and glorification. See, Jesus went into the tomb, but he came out different. He went into the tomb, but he came out different. He came out glorified. He was still a man. He didn't, he didn't come out some sort of uh, different person. He was still a man, but no longer suffering for sin. And he came out with dominion over sin and death. And there's a parallel to this in baptism. That when you are baptized, you come out different. You're buried with Christ and you're raised to walk in newness of life. You don't go under the water and come out dead. The same dead, hopeless sinner that you were before. You come out resurrected with Christ, with dominion over sin and death. And so Paul is using this spiritual reality of baptism. What happens when we place faith in Jesus Christ and we follow Christ and we're converted is that we are united with God, we're united with Christ in a real spiritual way through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That, that His death is our death. His life is our, our life. This is a spiritual reality that is, that is happening to every one of us who are Christians. Paul is taking this spiritual reality and he's going to use it as a um, demonstration and sort of as a, an illustration of and a motivation of living sanctified lives, of, of putting sin to death, to living in holiness. He's taking this theological, spiritual reality and making it very practical and applicational in our life. Which kind of moves me into the next little sub-point here is that we need to embody the spiritual reality of baptism. We need to embody the spiritual reality of baptism day in and day out. We see this in verses 12 through 14. Please follow along with me. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So what Paul is saying here, telling us to do, he's saying live baptized. Live baptized. Live with a new identity. Live out the spiritual reality that you have declared and what you have experienced in baptism. In other words, be what you are. This concept is something you need to get your head around to have any hope of a joyful Christian life. Be what you are. Be what you are. Not be what you will be. Be what you hope to be. But be what you are. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is... In sanctification, we live as God has declared us to be. God looks at us and he says, you are righteous. Go, therefore, and be righteous. 
You are holy. Go therefore and be holy. You see? He doesn't say go therefore and be holy so that you will be holy. He doesn't give us sort of a, 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 a task to go reaching for. But instead he gives us an identity. He gives us a, a, a calling that is rooted in his sovereign decree. His unchangeable word. He says, go and be who you are and what you are. This is, I've mentioned this earlier in Romans, but you need to make sure that you keep your indicatives before your imperatives. Do we have any English majors in here? Any language people? <laughs> An indicative. It's something that's declared. It's something that's just true. Right? And what's an imperative? An imperative is a command. So in the gospel, the indicatives come before the imperatives. You are justified. Go therefore and live justly. You are righteous. Go be righteous. You are holy. Go be holy. We don't flip them around. We don't put the imperatives before the indicatives. If you try to do that in your life, you will be miserable because you always fall short. You will never reach that goal and that standard. You see, you're living by law when you flip those things around. You're seeking to be justified by works of law if you flip those around. So we got to keep the indicatives before the imperatives. Now he tells us, um, in light of the spiritual reality of baptism, to present your members to God, not unrighteousness. What does he mean by members? This is your, your body parts. So in other words, present your member, your, present your body to God, not to unrighteousness. So this tells us that our lives, our embodied experience matters to God. God did not save you in order to like beam you up into heaven. God didn't save you to just get you to heaven one day. He saved you to live as a redeemed human being with a body, with a real life on this earth, awaiting the resurrection of the dead and that final great day where we're glorified um, like Christ is and we live forever on this earth in our bodies. So your, your body, your physical life matters to God. And he, and he shows us in verse 13 um, that... Um, our body should serve as instruments uh, for a purpose. It says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So our bodies are instruments for a purpose. And so that sort of begs the question is, for what purpose do you live? Like, wh why do you live on this earth? What's the goal of your life? What are you living for? What are you serving? Is your purpose for living sort of based upon your own purposes? Is it your purposes or the purposes of your sinful desires? Or is it for God's purposes? 
It's the question you should be asking of yourself. Uh, for, for whose purpose am I presenting my body? Every day when you wake up, you are presenting your body to something or someone to their purpose. Whose is it? It should be God's. Then he moves and he says, um, that he tells us that sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So this, this is important. And it kind of shows the upside down nature of the Christian life and the gospel that it is the grace of God that overcomes the power of sin. It's, it's God's declared forgiveness that overcomes the power of sin. It's not some flashy work. It's not some flashy thing. It is God's grace. So we see that the grace of God is the only power that will be victorious over sin. If you're under the law, you're hopeless because the harder you try to defeat sin by law keeping, you will only further prove your need of grace. And haven't we seen that? How many times have you told yourself, I'm going to do better this time. I'm going to try harder this time. God, I'm going to do this for you. And if, 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 you, if I do this, then, then Lord, will you bless me? I promise I'll never do this again. And the harder you try, the, the more you realize you need grace. You need grace. I don't know how many times I've made promises to, to God. Hey, if you just help me this time, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. But God would have us, in order to have dominion and victory over sin, surrender in weakness. Confess our need of mercy and grace. More than just help me, help me do the last 5 or 10% that I can't do. Is that how you pray? God, I'm going to try really hard, but I need you to help get me over the finish line. Or is it, God, I'm hopeless without you. I am a wretch. My flesh is weak. Spirit is willing, but my flesh is weak. Without you, I will fail. Which one of those prayers is more powerful? It's not the one who white knuckles it and says, just push me over the finish line, Lord. It's the one who says, God, give me breath. Give me life. Right? But since we are not under law, but under grace, sin will have dominion over you. This is huge. Why is that? What, what is the greatest power of the law? The greatest power. How, what makes the law and, and law-keeping so powerful? I, I think it's this. I think it is guilt and shame. I think guilt and shame is the power of the law and law-keeping because it's just always sort of rubbing in your face the reality of your sin. Right? And that's one of the uses of the law. Let's, let's, let's go take a little side step here, away from the notes a second. When we talk about the purpose of the law of God, we typically look at it in terms of three uses. 
The first use of the law of God is it reveals God's character to us. Shows us what God is like, that he is holy, he is good. Uh, over this semester, we've been using the Ten Commandments as our guide for our confession of sin. And we finished up with that tonight. And these Ten Commandments shows us the character of God, what God is like and what he'd have us to be. So that's the first use of God, the, uh, the law of God. The second use um, is to show us um, our need for a Savior, which I think this would actually technically be in that first use our need of a savior that we fall short this is who god is and then it also serves as like a mirror to show us who we are that we fall short of that and so when we look to the law and say here's my report card how am i doing f <laughs> if there was an f minus that would be it right the next use of the law is the restraining of we, evil, this will be the second use, the restraining of evil through the threat of punishment. If you do these things, you'll die, right? That's the second use of the law. The third use of the law isn't to clean yourself up, to better yourself. It would be like this. I've seen this illustration. I think this was um, Ravi Zacharias, an illustration I first saw this first time. The law of God is described in Scripture as like a mirror, and so if you, you go in the morning and you check your face in the mirror and you see that there's like a smudge of the Cheetos that you had at midnight in your bed. Right. Don't laugh. Y'all know y'all do that too. What do you do? Do you take the mirror down and you start rubbing your face with it? <laughs> Taking the Cheeto dust off your face? No. That's not the purpose of the mirror. The, the purpose of the mirror is to show you the Cheeto dust on your face. You go to something else to remove it. Jesus Christ, you go to Jesus to remove the stain of sin, not the law. The law is just going to show it to you. And, and the harder you try to get it off with the mirror, the bigger mess you're going to make. You have to use something else to get it off your face. You have to turn to Jesus. Now, where was I going with that? Oh, guilt and shame is the power of, of the law. So the, the law is powerful because it does. It shows us that stain in our face. And, and if we aren't looking to Christ, we're hopeless to get it off because we don't have the right tools to get it off. And so all it can ever do is just show you your ugliness. And you see that ugliness and you're ashamed of it. You experience the guilt of it. But here's what makes the gospel of grace powerful. is because God says, yep, I've seen that. I've seen that ugliness. And you're forgiven. I don't hold it, away from, I don't hold it against you. And actually, I've sent my son to erase it. I've seen the stain. And I don't hold it against you. You're beloved. You're beautiful. Because I say so. And what that does is it says, yeah, I got Cheeto dust on my face. But God still loves me. And I'm not ashamed of that because he's forgiven me. And if God doesn't hold it against me, why am I holding it against myself? Now maybe I can move on from that. Instead of just focusing on the, the stain, I can move on in faithfulness to what God's called me to do. Because I'm not ashamed of it anymore. Because God has called me out. 
So it's a good thing when God calls you out because you don't have to stay hot, hid anymore. And the gospel calls us all out. And that's why the gospel of grace gives us dominion over sin because it disarms the power of guilt and shame. That if someone was to come accuse me of sin, yes, you shouldn't be surprised. I'm a sinner. I'm such a sinner that the Son of God had to come into the world and be crucified for my sin. Right? And so the power of overcoming the law, the dominion over sin that we've been given, is directly related to the fact that we are under grace and not law. And see, Paul's detractors would want to flip it. Hey, you're telling people they're saved by grace. You're going to cause them to live in sin. He's like, no, I'm actually giving them power to overcome sin. That's the next thing I want you guys to see is that there, there actually is real power to overcome, not just to be forgiven. Okay? In the gospel of grace, there is actual power to overcome sin and temptation, not just to be forgiven when you inevitably fail. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is the text that, that people often misquote and say, God will never give you more than you can handle. That's not what it says. But he's saying there's no temptation that God has not also given you the ability to escape it. You actually have power over sin. You're not enslaved to it anymore. And so don't just wallow in your sin or presume upon God's forgiveness while continuing to live in sin. I see these two sort of reactions in Christians see on campus. Uh, one is, um, the, I think that you see sort of outside of the church, people who might call themselves Christians but aren't plugged into a church, they would be more likely to presume upon God's forgiveness. Well, God's going to forgive me. God loves me. He's going to forgive me, so I'm going to do what I want to do, right? You've heard that before. Maybe you've said that before. That's contrary to Christianity. That's contrary to the Bible. The other thing I see that's more common in Christians who are involved in the church is to wallow in their sin. They say, oh, I'm such a worm, which we, we say, amen, yeah, you are. But, but keep going, worm. You've got power to overcome. Don't just wallow in your sin and live a defeatist life. But, but live holy as God is holy. He's called us to do that. So it's not Christianity to wallow in sin or presume upon God's forgiveness. And it is not the life of grace. So that leads us to the next point. The next sort of um, objection is, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Right? And we've kind of already started going there. And then Paul uses this um, example of slavery. So here's what he says in verses 15 through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart 
to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul's riffing off of Bob Dylan here. He's saying, you got to serve somebody. You know, I'm going to work that into any sermon I can get it worked into. This is set up on a T on this one. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. He says, hey, whoever you present yourselves to and you obey, that's your master. Whoever you obey, that is your master. See, you're not free. You're obeying something or someone. You are a slave. This is a word, the doulos in, in the Greek. And there's a bit of sort of controversy. We were talking about translation earlier. There's a bit of controversy in that word in the Greek of how do we translate that? Because the, the word slave, especially in modern American uh, mind, it ha is loaded with certain particular connotations that that word doulos doesn't necessarily contain. Um, and so this is, could be the term of a bond servant. Uh, or, or a servant. It's not always someone who is um, sort of employed without compensation, as we tend to think of it. Um, but it. But it can be as well. But the idea here is you're serving someone. You're not free. So, you're, someone is your master. And um, you, you, whoever you present yourself to um, as obedient slaves, that is your master. So is your master social media? and public opinion? Is your master dead presidents on green sheets of paper? Or is your master between your legs? Or imaginary women on a screen? Or are you ruled by a short-fused temper? Or does your tiny little tongue lead you around? You see, you're not as free as you thought you were. You're, you're presenting yourself to some master. And, and the question that, that Paul would ask you is, aren't you tired of being a slave to an oppressive master? Aren't you tired of being a slave to someone who is leading you to death? Apart from Christ... You're not free. And Paul's point here is that even in Christ, you're not autonomous. You're freed from sin, but you're not autonomous. You're not, that word just means self-law. You're not a law unto yourself. The difference here is the difference between being a slave to righteousness versus being a slave to sin is that being a slave to righteousness in Christ is serving a good master. 
It's, it's serving a master who cares for you and loves you and will lead to everlasting life. Not serving a master who leads to shame and death. And that's what he says. Obedience to sin leads to death, but obedience to God leads to life. And so you've got to serve somebody, so who are you going to serve? And then he moves in verses 20 through 23. And I struggled to sort of title this section, so this is probably not the best title, but here's, here it is. This has got working for better wages. Working for better wages. Uh, I'm going to reread verses 20 through 23. He says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's pointing us to consider the outcome of serving these two masters, sin or God. And he says, what kind of fruit? When, when you presented yourselves as a slave to sin, remember your life prior to Christ, what kind of fruit were you getting in your life? It was actually things of which you are now ashamed, right? It's a, it's a shameful fruit. It's shameful wages that you get laboring for that master. And actually it ends in death. So as John Owen said, do you need to be killing sin or sin be killing you? Be killing sin or sin be killing you. That, that, that the fruit of the labor for sin is shame and death. But the fruit of labor for God is sanctification and eternal life. It's a better deal. Because he's a better master. Elsewhere in scripture we see that the fruit of the spirit this fruit of serving the Lord is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh, who wouldn't want to be defined by those things? And as I said, I kind of struggle with that last title because it says work for better wages when the last verse literally compares the slavery to sin as wages, but slavery to God as a free gift. And what that does is that just reminds us that our work in the Lord, our labor in sanctification, our labor to get better, to grow as a Christian, to, to put sin to death and to bring to life righteous living, all of those things is ultimately a gift of God. It's ultimately a gift of God. We work for God as God works in us. Paul says this in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. He says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You, you see how that works? Work out your own salvation. So that's what Paul is telling us. Put sin to death. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies, is what he says. Kill sin. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Because it is God who works in you. 
You're, you're doing holy work when you're laboring for sanctification because God is the one working in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so even that work of sanctification is a gift of God's grace. The wages of sin is death. What you have accrued for yourself in sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And as we start winding down, sort of bringing it back around full circle, how can we be assured of that eternal life? That when we read the Bible and you say, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How do we know? How can we be assured that we will have that eternal life? Did you come out of the water? You were buried with Christ so that you might also be raised with him. Did Jesus come out of the grave? He did. So follow him. See, we've been given this promise that if you die with Christ and you're raised with him, you do have eternal life. As sure as you came out of that water on the day you were baptized, that if your faith is in Christ, you will have eternal life. God is not going to uh, withhold the fruit of your labor. He's not going to scam you. God's not going to say, hey, work for me for 80 years, and then I'll kill you off and send you to hell anyways. He's not that type of master. He says, no, welcome, come into my family, serve me with joy and gladness, sit around my table and feast, and when you die, yet you shall live. Because you were buried with Christ, and you were raised to walk in newness of life. He lives and grants me daily breath. Glory, hallelujah. He lives and I shall conquer death. Glory, hallelujah. What is our assurance? That we will conquer death because Jesus lives. You see? And we have union with him. So we shout on, we pray on, we're gaining ground because the dead's alive. The lost is found. Glory, hallelujah. So that's the sermon. Here's a couple points of application. The application should have been pretty straightforward for you tonight. I shouldn't really have to explain it to you. If I did, I need to be fired. The application is this. Be killing sin. Be killing sin. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait until later. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you, as Owen said. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. I, I really couldn't sort of implore us all to fight sin uh, any better than Spurgeon said it here. He says, Let us abhor the sin which brought such agony upon our beloved Lord. What an accursed thing is sin which crucified the Lord Jesus. Do you laugh at it? Will you go and spend an evening to see a mimic performance of it? Or watch it on Netflix? Do you roll sin under your tongue as a sweet morsel and then come to God's house on the Lord's day morning and think to worship him? Worship him? Worship him with sin indulged in your breast? Worship him with sin loved and pampered in your life? 
Oh, sirs, if I had a dear brother who had been murdered, what would you think of me if I valued the knife which had been crimsoned with his blood? If I made a friend of the murderer and daily consorted with the assassin who drove the dagger into my brother's heart? Surely I too must be an accomplice in the crime. Sin murdered Christ. Will you be a friend to it? Sin pierced the heart of the incarnate God. Can you love it? Oh, that there was an abyss as deep as Christ's misery, that I might at once hurl this dagger of sin into its depths, whence it might never be brought to light again. Be gone, O sin. Thou art banished from the heart where Jesus reigns. Be gone, for thou hast crucified my Lord and made him cry, Why hast thou forsaken me? O oh, my hearers, if you did but know yourselves and know the love of Christ, you would each one vow that you would harbor sin no longer. You would be indignant at sin and cry, The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, Lord, I will tear it from its throne and worship only thee. So be killing sin. Don't play with it. Don't make friends with it. Kill it. And the second point of application is to use the right tool in the fight. Use the right weapon in the fight. When sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So we fight with the grace of God. We fight with the sword of the Spirit, not with the flesh. We sort of had our first little... Uh, I wouldn't necessarily like troll comment, but uh, comment on Instagram. Uh, a guy commented on the video about the uh, Jolly Warriors, and he was saying that uh, drinking and fighting are forbidden in the Bible and that we were blaspheming and deceiving people. And uh, I responded back to him, and, and he responded back sarcastically. I mean, I kind of deserved it. I was a little sarcastic too. But he was like, he says, well, fight on and be a jolly warrior or something like that. I keep going. I was like, okay, we'll do. And I referenced the passage in Corinthians where the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but are mighty for bringing down strongholds. The weapon of our warfare is the Spirit of God, His Word and the grace of God. It is not our flesh. It is not our own strength or our white-knuckle ability to pull ourselves together, but it's by prostrating ourselves before the Lord and casting ourselves upon His mercy and living that way daily. Dying to ourself, taking up the cross and following Jesus, and that is the path of life. That is victory over sin. And it is ours to have if we believe. So let's pray and ask for God's blessing in this.